as uh, you have the book and uh, you go through this book, it is one that uh, we know the author is Paul. He identifies himself right at the beginning uh, as the author, though we did note a couple weeks ago that it was Tertius that, uh, or otherwise known as Third, uh, that uh, was the scribe. Uh, Paul had probably handwriting like many of us that was unreadable uh, or not very easy to read, and so he got somebody to do this that uh, was much better at writing. The theme of the book is just simply this. It's the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we go through the book, we'll note the fact that it's not just the power that he has to save us in an instant, which he does, but it's the process of him saving us also. We call it sanctification. We're becoming more like Christ. Uh, we're fellow heirs with Christ. We're brothers and sisters of Christ, and we're looking like the family, and there's this process, and it takes a lot of power to change some of us. You know, you think about uh, what we're like, and uh, we, you know, need that power to change us, and so the power of God and the transforming power of Jesus Christ is that work of salvation has begun, and it will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, there is power and the whole book of Romans covers this, the point of salvation, the process of salvation, and then the finality of it when you get to Romans 8, and it talks about the fact that one day we'll be glorified, which means our flesh will be removed, uh, our flesh nature will be removed from our body, and we'll be in glory, and we will be saved forever. Every part of us, uh, every element uh, will be saved from sin and death. Uh, so that's what this book's about. I mean, it, it seems like, okay, you start off at the beginning. Oh, that's where it talks about salvation. Romans 2, 3. Okay, we're done with that. Now let's get on to the other stuff. No, the whole book's about the good news of Jesus Christ is it transforms a person. It takes God's power to change an individual to be able to do this. And so that's the theme of this. Uh, it's written for a congregation that had not met Paul. Uh, he had met some of the members of the congregation there, but he had never been to Rome. Okay, you know, when they talk about Paul being perhaps the founder of the church at Rome, no. And Peter, and that's highly questionable too uh, <clears throat> on many, many levels, but uh, he had never been there. Uh, it's not till after his third missionary journey and uh, he'd been in prison for a number of years that he finally actually does get to Rome. Uh, one of the reasons that he writes this letter is that he is preparing the way for him to come to Rome on the way to Spain. You read Romans chapter 15, and he's kind of going, here's my plans. I, I plan to come to you, and uh, I'm preparing you to help me as I go uh, eventually to Spain. I, I have gifts that I want to give to you, spiritual gifts that I want to be able to see in you, but I'm on my way to Spain. And so he's kind of preparing these people to meet him, and he writes them this very large letter uh, that prepares them to get, well, to know what is important to him, which was the gospel. Uh, and uh, that's one of his purposes in writing it, uh, was for them just to kind of get familiar with who he is uh, for this. Time that it's written, it's written uh, while Paul was in Corinth. We know that at the very end. There's a subscript that's there, and there's many other things that indicate the fact that he was in Corinth at the time. Um, it's during his third missionary journey, you say, how do you know this? It's because uh, it's at the end of his third missionary journey that he's taking this offering back to Jerusalem. 
And when he's writing this letter to the Romans, he's talking about how Macedonia and Acacia has gathered this money for the benefit of the Jews in Jerusalem. It's really picturing uh, Gentiles and Jews getting together, which is what Christ is able to do, uh, bring groups that never like each other to uh, be uh, able to be around each other and encouraged by one another. And so he does make mention of this. So it's during that third missionary journey that he's at Corinth, he's writing this letter, uh, hoping that pretty soon, as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, he can then make a trip to Rome. But he does not, well, immediately foresee the fact that he's going to go to prison, though on his way back, you read the book of Acts, and people are prophesying the fact that he's going to go to jail and all of this and warning him off. So third missionary journey, so it's, it's between 55 and 57. It's kind of, that's the time frame we can guess by uh, the book of Acts, uh, where he would have been writing this letter to uh, this church at Rome. This is by far the longest of Paul's letters. Okay, if you look at it in the original language, about 7,100 words. You say, well, why is that significant? Because Paul's letters normally are about 1,300 words. Okay, normally like three chapters, four chapters, five chapters. You know, here you got Romans at 16. Um, to get an idea of how lengthy this letter is, the average letter in Roman culture was no more than 200 words. They've got about 14,000 letters from this time frame when Paul is writing, and for the most part, 90 to 200 words. So the, this is a lengthy letter that is being sent to this church. It's not a short thing. Uh, it's not normal the length that it is. Um, and it does not seem to be addressing specific issues or questions. It's not that Paul's writing this letter. Like Corinth, there's issues uh, that he's answering, and there's specific issues that with the church at Corinth, he starts writing because he knows that there's things not going right in that church. Um, but in this one, there doesn't seem that the apostle Paul is writing to address any specific issue, though he does kind of shape it uh, some of his uh, different things to the congregation that's there, but it's not like he's writing this because they asked him to answer, answer things or that he is uh, identifying major problems. Um, he does shape the message of the letter for some of the situations in Rome. Common words, as you read through, um, <clears throat> more than any other time in the writings of the Apostle Paul, uh, the frequency of his use of the name of God. He just keeps coming back to what God is doing and the power that he's displaying in Jesus Christ and what God is doing as far as his plan for the nations and for the Jews and all of this. And, and so God is really uh, emphasized throughout this in uh, his glory, uh, that phrase quite often in the book. And uh, you also have this word, the gospel, the good news. I mean, you see it right in the first verse. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Here's good news from God. And the book just keeps going from there, uh, all those details. But you'll see uh, that name of God and the gospel just being uh, magnified repeatedly over and over again. The outline of the book uh, <clears throat> You do have an introduction that goes from about, uh, well, 1-1 to 1-14, um, and then you have an ending, as we read in uh, Romans 16, it's kind of a, 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 an epilogue, you have a prologue, epilogue, or the introduction and the conclusion, but the outline really starts 
in verses one, uh, chapter one, verses 15 through 17. And we looked at this on Sunday, but it is the passage of the scripture that uh, really worked to convince people like Wesley and Luther of their need of salvation, uh, the hearing of this, uh, and uh, that it was a, a salvation that was by faith. And for the Apostle Paul, he said this, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are Rome also, for I am not ashamed uh, of the gospel of Christ. Why should he? he? It's the thing that transformed him. And truly for us, it's the same thing that transformed us. So the, the problem with us is that we are ashamed because people in our culture may not like him. And it's like, I have an eternal standing with God the Father, and you can have that too. I mean, what's there to be ashamed of of that? But Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the, the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. From therein, you go, what's that? The whole story is that you can have a right standing found in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, and the righteousness can be yours if you just simply uh, have faith and it will transform you and keep transforming you after that first initial faith that you have. And then it just simply says this, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now that is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. It's actually uh, quoted two more times in Paul's letter. He really seemed to enjoy this passage. And uh, in this passage, he's emphasizing the fact that there is salvation by faith. I mean, that, that's the emphasis. It's the by faith element. For Luther, he recognized this in reading this. It's not salvation by effort, by me having something to do with this. No, it's just simply, I cast myself upon God and his son. And uh, it, it is the whole core for this. Um, and you find this to be the case. So one is given a right standing with God because of faith in Christ. The just, the one who's justified, the one who's righteous shall live by faith. And, and so that is the, I didn't say the core statement, but really the foundational statement for the whole book. You say, how does the outline work? Well, hopefully you remember that it is uh, one that we alliterated, and it starts with the letter S uh, as you go throughout, and these sections are, as you read through commentaries, they don't change. I mean, this is pretty easy. They go, this is where these cut points are at in the book as you read through it, uh, and, uh, and so you can find this as you read through, and you can pretty much tell it. The tenor changes uh, in the book, but the first one is sin. Okay, that's the first element. And the sin, the first section of the letter, is the bad news that magnifies the need for good news. Mankind has the righteous judgment of God upon them because they ignore what they know about God. I mean, it's verse 18, right? The very first statement after the fact, the just shall live by faith. It's this, for the wrath of God is revealed uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. I mean, God's got a righteous wrath that he is displaying against this. Um, and understand, this is a present tense. 
okay? Right now, people on earth are under the judgment of God and experiencing his judgment right now for them not, and being ungodly means not having a right relationship with God, and being unrighteous is not having a right relationship with other people. Okay, that's, that's the issue here. And God's displaying his wrath. And really, as you look at the rest of uh, chapter one, God kind of displays his wrath this way. Okay, I'll let you go the way you're going. You, you want to be independent of my structure and what I want you to do? Okay, I'll let you dishonor yourself with one another. I'll let you sin and take your sin as far as you want to go with that. I'll let you do that. And the sin itself is oftentimes the punishment. And you think about the lifestyle that is discussed there in Romans chapter 1. That lifestyle is a very hard lifestyle. No matter what they try and do and, and flower it up and color it up in a month like this, it is not a lifestyle of happiness and joy. Uh, you find that that group of individuals is more suicidal than most. The statistics prove it because they're so frustrated by what's going on in life. But the judgment of God is against individuals, and he just kind of lets them go. You, you know about me. You can see in creation I'm there. You've got this thing in your heart that you understand that I'm there, and you go against that, and I'm going to let you go in that direction and allow your own sin to be your judgment presently. Though if you hold in that condition and die, it's going to be even worse you'll be separated from God forever. Your sin separates you right now from God, but eternally you'll be separated. So mankind has the righteous judgment of God upon them because they ignore what they know about God. For Gentiles, they ignore God's revelation and creation. Their lives display the rejection. Chapter 2 is all about the Jews. And the Jews have the written word of God. They've got right in front of them. It's not that they have to kind of go, okay, I'm seeing in creation that there is a God out there. He's really incredible. They got it right in words. Problem is, is that there is uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest uh, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest dost the same things. You're kind of going, well, look at that. Those people are doing that, and those people are doing that. And Paul goes, okay, why don't you reflect with the mirror of your, the, the word of God and reflect upon what you're doing? Because the very things you say they're breaking, you're doing. And so they're actually, their guilt before God is greater than the Gentiles. They have the information in hand, but they choose to do their own thing. And they go about creating their own righteousness, which is never going to work. They avoid God's righteousness, which is uh, coming to God uh, and confessing the sin and calling upon him for salvation. By the beginning of chapter 3, one must come to the conclusion that there is no one who is without guilt of sin before God. Uh, A good thing as you read through the book of Romans, when you get to Romans chapter 3, and especially in verse number 9 to verse number 12, it's just to underline all the universal terms that are there. No one, none, every, all. And by the time you get done with that, you're going, it doesn't matter if I'm a Jew or Gentile, we're all under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. 
and he actually is quoting many of these passages in that section are from the Old Testament. This isn't a New Testament concept. This isn't right from the Old Testament that everyone is guilty of sin. So by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, there is this hopelessness. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. And that idea of justified is be right before God. No one's got the hope of being right before God under the law. Uh, For there's no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is not the standard that you keep. What the law is is going to be what judges you. It's the measure. It's the rule. And you didn't match up. Okay. And think about this. The great white throne judgment. If your name's not found in the book of life, you're judged by your works. And your works have to match up to what the law said. And it's not there to help you, it's there to condemn you. Which doesn't make it bad. We're ones who are sold under sin. Romans 7 is going to talk about it. It's not that the law is bad, it's that we're bad. So you get to the, the point there. Sin, it's really bad. Everybody's underneath it. Uh, I have no hope of standing before God because I'm not right and I never have hope of being right myself. Okay, that, that's where a person ought to be by Romans 3 and verse 20. But as we get to the second section, which is salvation, that introductory statement, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed to by the law and the prophets. You go, well, what's the righteousness of God without the law? That's Jesus Christ. He's manifest. He's made known. He's displayed into the world. He comes into the world. And so by verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of or in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Okay, you say, what's a propitiation? A propitiation is a sacrifice that takes punishment. Jesus Christ was a sacrifice that took the wrath of God that we justly deserve for our sins and took the payment upon him. That's what it means when you have that. And this propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. You can have forgiveness of sins because your sins have already been paid for by someone who offered themselves to sacrifice Jesus Christ. You get done with that section, that that section, many different uh, things that you could preach on as far as uh, different elements of salvation. You find uh, this, that a person who believes that Jesus Christ is justified. Justification's an event. You have a whole segment of society that would like to make justification a process. You know, a whole church that justification is a process, and you're like, no, it's not. It's an event. It's a one-time event where you are declared righteous in the sight of God. The penalty of sin uh, is taken away forever. You're not guilty. Uh, that's what justification is. Um, you're righteous in God's sight. Okay, the salvation is not earned by works or ceremony. That's what all of what chapter four is about. 
Now, this thought process, maybe people in the Old Testament were saved by works. Now, let's talk about Abraham. And he goes, well, wait a second. You have to remember that God's statement about Abraham in Genesis 15 is that Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. He had righteousness imputed to his account. He didn't do anything. You read Abraham's life, not a very nice guy. He lies about his wife twice. I mean, this is, you know, he, he's not a perfect individual. He's worshiping idols before God calls him in the land of Ur. So, you know, he's not a, a person that uh, earned his salvation by works or ceremony. And the question for the Jews is, well, maybe the ceremony of circumcision. Uh, maybe there is this process of being part of a family line that that makes me saved. And chapter four just answers all those questions and goes, no, that's not the case. Uh, in fact, salvation is something that was offered to you, Romans 5, that when you were yet sinners, you were the enemy of God, Christ died for you. Regardless of what effort you put in, you were just as miserable, you were at enmity and at war with God, uh, he saved you. <coughs> There's a section at the end of Romans 5 that just uh, talks about, and it, it suddenly changes tone, it's kind of a doctrinal section because there's no personal uh, statements about individuals and applying it. It's just making statements of fact that through Adam all died. But in Christ, many can be made alive. Christ is this new Adam where the first Adam failed. You have Christ coming in and he's succeeding. He succeeds where Adam failed. And so the salvation that is offered is uh, not necessarily that you're part of a, a line of any kind, because if you were part of one line, Adam's line, you're going to be condemned because you're born sinner. But if you put faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of another family line. So there is this element that's there. So Jesus' death is able to save people in Adam's line, of Adam's race. So that's how Romans 5 ends. So you have these questions about salvation, you know, the statements of it, but just answering some questions. You know, is there a different possibility of salvation? The third section is sanctification and security. Okay, the first thing that usually happens with a person when they get saved is that they all of a sudden say, can I lose my salvation? Because it's not too far after they get saved, they do something really bad or they do something really wrong uh, and um, they're just like, okay, well, you know, God's not going to accept me anymore. I've got to do something uh, to, to be saved. And what the Apostle Paul lays out is is first of all what the issue of sanctification is okay what what does it mean uh, this process of sanctification that's taking place where i'm beginning to look more and more like christ less and less like my old life and he lays out in, in Romans chapter 6 that you have been freed from the law. You have been freed from the dominion of sin. When you, when you uh, got saved, you died to the old life. It's like chapter 1 in your book of your life was before you got saved. Chapter 2, you got saved. And you had died to sin. You're no longer under the dominion of sin. You don't have to sin. And so in Romans 6, there, there are these, these three phrases that are there where, first of all, Paul goes, you need to know something, okay? You need to know you're dead to sin. And, second of all, you need to reckon that to yourself. 
that it's not just the person over there and over there. No, this means me too. I reckon this to be true about me. And then he kind of says this, and yield yourself members of righteousness. Okay? You say, okay, I no longer have to serve sin. I am going to yield my members to righteousness. What Romans 7 indicates is this, is that though it seems really easy in fact, it's really difficult when you get to the reality. Because what we find in Romans chapter 7 is that, yes, we have been changed, and even this, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, okay? You have the Spirit in you, the problem is, is you still have that flesh nature that thinks it's still under the dominion of sin and likes the old kingdom, likes the old life, and is very much a part of you. It's not like there's a separate part of you. It's you. It's part of who you are, your makeup, your character, and it's there. And so you have this struggle that takes place. And you read these contrasting things, you really get confused, but the the whole argument really takes off in verse 14 of chapter 7, where you just start reading where Paul goes, there are things I would do, and I don't do them, and there's things I know to be wrong, and I do them. And he gets to the end in verse number 24, and he just simply says, and this is the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What he's saying is, when will I ever get free of my flesh? Now, it doesn't get answered directly in Romans chapter 8 until you get about halfway through where it talks about even the whole of creation is waiting for uh, the event of the redemption of our body that our body that dies because of sin and living as part of a uh, a sinful line and that is going to be put into the ground, but one day that body is going to be glorified. Um, Christ delivers us from the body of death. You see that at the end of verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, I, I know this to be the case. I'm going to have this happen someday. Jesus Christ has made this possible, uh, but I still have this battle that takes place. In Romans chapter 8, he just simply goes through and talks about all the benefits of being saved. All the blessings. Some present, some yet future. The idea that I have the Spirit that's with me and that I am a joint heir with Christ and these things. You just look at these things and these are passages that people look at and go, these are the present blessings I have in salvation. But you read that, and then you sometimes look at the reality of life. And you get to a verse like uh, verse 26. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There are occasions in life that you're just going to be baffled at what's going on. You know, I've had enough conversations like that this week. What's going on? Well, you know, why, why would this be happening? Or uh, what should we be praying for in all of this? Don't know. I mean, it's 
like the laments of the Old Testament where people are crying out and going, how long, God, or how, or why? And they're, just, they're, they're going, it doesn't quite piece together. You're a good God who's given me all these blessings, but I don't know what to do. Well, you pray. Okay, go to the one who's given you salvation and you pray and you say, well, I'm not going to pray very well. Well, you've got the Spirit of God that's making the right request for you perfectly because he knows the mind of God. Unless we think that somehow God doesn't like us when we go through bad situations, uh, what he then lays out is that God's had a plan for you. This isn't just haphazard that you got saved. No, God's very much interested in who you are. That's why you have this in verse number 28, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, I'm going to stop there. I didn't talk about this much on Sunday, but do you realize this? It says, for them that love God, all things work out for good. Because can you think of somebody where all things are not going to work out for good? An unsaved person in the end is going to be separated from God forever. Okay? This is, this is a statement about saved individuals, ones that love God, that all things work together for good. There's a purpose behind this. That's good for them and for others. And God's using this individual because from, look at verse number 29, it says this, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brethren, do you realize some of the suffering you go through is what God is going to say, this is going to make you more like the son of God. You're going to look like Christ because you think of someone who suffered more than any other human being, it was Jesus Christ. And so in your suffering, you're, you're being compressed into a mold that is looking more and more like the Son of God. And so some of the suffering you go through is just God shaping you to look more like Christ. And then you have this series of questions as you go through in verse number 31 to 34 or 35. This idea is that maybe these things will ultimately separate me from God. And the answer is, who shall separate us from the love of God or love of Christ and you look at this in verse number 35, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Really pretty much anything bad that you can think of in this life. Are those things going to separate me from God? No. I mean, you have this statement, it's kind of an answer in verse 37. Nay, no. And all these things, uh, you are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you get to the end of this section, okay, the blessings that you'll be glorified, your body be redeemed in heaven, the flesh nature is removed. However, these blessings do not remove the difficulties in his life. Yet God has a part and every part of our salvation will not let any believer be separated from him through Christ Jesus, because of Christ Jesus, really. I mean, that's why this section is about sanctification, because it answers the question, yes, there's a battle that's going to take place uh, in your soul, but you're being conformed to the image of Christ. But there's also the security, because God's going to make you like his son someday. One day we shall see him, and we will be like him 
what 1 John tells us. So there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're secure. Okay, there's this process that you're going through, but you're secure through the whole process. Nothing's going to happen to you. This section here is by far the most controversial. Okay, we we talked about this um, because there are many that come to this passage and have already assumed this as they're reading their Bibles that the nation of Israel is now the church. Okay, that you had a few people that were saved in the early part of the church and thus the church is now the new Israel. And that you're going to be, you know, that somehow Israel has gotten absorbed in the church. It no longer exists. And the church is the new Israel. So they come to this passage in Romans 9, 10, 11. They really aren't quite sure what they're going to do with it. And I will tell you this, commentaries on this section, uh, there are books and books and books on this section with people trying to come up with a solution but a lot of them are trying to come up with a solution because they are seeing the church as the nation of Israel. And you're going, no, it's not. But the question comes up, okay, we're talking here the sovereignty of God. It's in this section. Uh, it seems to kind of wander off the message of the power of the gospel. You suddenly are talking about this fact of, okay, the nation of Israel, what's the big deal here? Well, the question is this. If God has cast off the nation of Israel, that he made promises to Abraham and to Jacob and to Isaac and to the patriarchs, and he made promises to them and then made covenants with David and others, and he suddenly goes, "Mm, don't need those. I mean, granted, I promised the nation of Israel and descendants of Abraham, specifically, physically, certain promises, and I cast them off. Okay, if that's the case, could God possibly cast off the promises that he his son dying on the cross will save me. That's, that's a major thing now. If God has perhaps cast off the nation of Israel, maybe somehow God is not powerful or he's not trustworthy. And so when you go through, some seem to be questioning whether or not God will save because it seems like he cast off the nation of Israel to whom he had made many promises. So in chapter 9, Paul states that God can do whatever he wants to do. I mean, really, that's the argument when you start off. It's the whole thing. Of, is, the, is the pot going to tell the potter how to be made? He can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. He's in control. It's not that things happen by accident. No, God's got his fingers in everything. Okay? There's no event, no person, no uh, anything that happens in this universe that God does not have a part in it, and he's got a right to do what he wants to do. But at the end of Romans chapter 9, as you read through it, he starts quoting Old Testament passages that seem to indicate this, that he was planning on having a part or a remnant of the nation of Israel be saved even though they were going to be judged. And he quotes multiple passages of this. So what Paul does is, yes, God's sovereign, but understand this. Even in the Old Testament, he was saying, I'm going to have this group of people, I am going to have a portion of the nation of Israel saved. You get to Romans chapter 10, okay, and you have this. 
This then deals with the fact that the nation of Israel, as everyone else, uh, as everyone else bears responsibility, respond in faith to the promises of God. Okay, this is where you have this, the problem here. You know, chapter 9, God's sovereign. He's in complete control. And you're going, yes, okay, he is. And then you get to the chapter 10, and you're saying, well, we're responsible. And the real problem comes is, uh, hey, how does this work together? And there's lots of guys who try and figure this out. Now, remember how chapter 11 ends how great the depth and the height of the wisdom of God. It's infinite. And you're as a finite, pea-brained individual going to try and figure out how the infinite God puts those things together. Okay, that's, that's the problem here is that people want to be able to say, I've got the solution here. And you're going, God doesn't tell us how that works. He's sovereign, Human beings have responsibility, and it doesn't displace that God is in complete control of everything, but humans have the responsibility to respond to the message of God, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Israel rejected God. They did this of their own volition. They chose to to have Christ crucified. The leaders of the nation did this. But you look at chapter 11, and this kind of explains that God has not cast off the nation of Israel and his promises to them. He, for the moment, is working mainly with the nations, or in the passage there, it's the Gentiles. And they're enjoying the the blessings that God gave to the nation of Israel. They're enjoying the blessings of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and that uh, he is uh, the one who can provide salvation, this new covenant uh, heart that he can give individuals. Uh, The nations are enjoying some of those blessings, but one day Israel will accept Christ as their Savior and will enjoy the promises that God has made. God is and always will keep his promises. And you get to the end of uh, Romans chapter 11, you're like, okay, God's great. I mean, you could close it down right there uh, with the amen at the end of uh, chapter 11 and just go, God's incredible. He knows what he's doing. Salvation is secure and safe. We're safe for eternity. Nothing to worry about. But Paul doesn't stop there because he's got one last thing he wants to talk about, and that's service. Okay, I'm not just saved to sit around. No, I'm saved to serve. Romans 12, 1 and 2 opens this way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You go, what mercies? Uh, Everything you've had in the first 11 chapters of God's salvation gift. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or logical service. It's the, the, the reasonable thing to do. If he saved you, you can't really pay anything back, but at least you could reflect what he's given to you. Okay, so his passage there, excuse me, the response is that a life is a sacrifice back to God for a salvation gift. It'll just be a reflection of what Jesus has done. Not that it saves, the service doesn't save, but it's a reflection of what Christ has given to us and just reflecting back what he has ultimately given for us. 
Now, this service is seen in the church. You read those verses there, and here's the church. The church is a greenhouse for people to begin to understand how to serve and how to minister to other people and get along with one another. Uh, And then verses 17 to 20, going out into the world, venturing out a little further. You know, the dangerous grounds there, but you've perhaps in the church gotten used to serving, and now you're in the world. How do you serve out there? Uh, And then, how do you serve when, and it's really going to become an issue with Rome, about 10 years after this book is written, how do you serve a government that sometimes is extremely flawed, but yet you still serve your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the midst of that, and you serve the government that you're underneath. And you get to chapter 13, verse 8 through 14, it's just, just simply saying this, that you serve all the time. There's no, no time off here. Okay, wake out of sleep is what the, the challenge is there. Uh, you, you need to, to keep serving. Now, sometimes the service happens this way. Uh, sometimes your service causes one to act in love towards other believers who may not have the same position or conscience. He deals with chapter 14 and 15 that people have different issues on, uh, or different beliefs on certain issues. Okay? Just the way it is. You know, there's not a straight Bible principle or a command on something, and people are like, well, I I, I think this and I think this, and they're not exceptionally wrong. You say, well, how do you get along with people like that? You love and you serve, and if it's going to cause somebody to stumble, what you're doing, don't do it. And if you have the love of Christ, you'll be able to do it. A heart of service. Um, He gets to that. And then Paul gives an example of his life the service he's doing, what he's doing, examples of uh, what he's doing and looking to do as far as his plans and service for the Lord, what has been accomplished. And uh, he even names some of the regions he's gone to, uh, even Illyricum and places like that, preaching the gospel as part of his service to God. So he names that. You get to chapter 16. It's a chapter of people and greetings. We've just gone over this. Uh, it's the closing thing. It's not necessarily part of all the other things. It's just kind of the closing thing. But the final chapter displays the power of God to use people who have been changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. you got a whole listing of people there, some famous, some well-known, some not so well-known, and God's using all of them. The transforming power of the gospel seen in the lives of individuals of all nationalities, stripes, backgrounds, status, that Jesus Christ, his salvation that he provides, is able to display the power of God in changing individuals for eternity. And so that's the whole book. Uh, It is a book that, I mean, I tell people you ought to read all the Bible and you ought to read it on a regular basis, but Romans ought to be one you come to time and time again uh, because it is just encompassing all parts of the Christian life beginning, middle, end, and what it can do. And so a great book, and so hopefully those notes will help you as you go read it again. Time's ahead. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your power that you've displayed through him and his sacrifice to rescue people like us. May we continue to live and be transformed to reflect what Christ looks like, And uh, may you continue to show and display your good working in us until the day that we stand in your presence. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your son.
and we're thankful for the eternal salvation that's secure. In your son's name we pray. Amen.